came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Moses will remain forever, so the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Good evening, everyone. Uh, good to be together. I just uh, noticed that Digging Deeper announcement and just um, want to underline that, actually. Uh, that Digging Deeper uh, is revolutionary for your Christian life. If you've never done that one before, that looks like, at how does the whole Bible fit together? What's the unfolding story of the whole Bible? It's magic. So can I just encourage you to think about getting along to that one? Um, but let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can be together. And we thank you so much for your living word, the Bible. And we do ask, please, this evening, Lord, uh, by your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see you in all your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever had a moment of glory? You know, that race, that race when you were younger that you trained so hard for and the moment came and you prevailed. National champion, state champion, kindergarten champion. You can look back on it, your moment of glory, that moment when your splendour shone forth for all to see. Or that HSC mark you got, all that hard work, hard work, hard work, paid off, 99.25, you almost got there. All your peers saw it and gave you all the adulation and recognition that you deserved, your moment of glory. Or that moment in high school when you're waiting at the bus stop, you're skating around, half the school's there watching and you just managed to ollie up onto the railing down the steps next to the, the railing next to the stairs, slide down five metres, land it. Whoa, people's mouths are hanging open. You're thinking, moment of high school glory. Do you have a moment of glory? Or do you, like me, have a bunch of moments of anti-glory? I can think back to um, when I was in about year seven, year eight, and uh, I got on the bus one day and I sat down those seats where you're sort of fairly exposed because you're sitting the opposite of each other. I thought what's that stink? Someone stinks. And I looked down and I realised there was poo on my shoe. And I thought, I think I can get to school without anyone noticing. And so I tried to cover it up and I was just, I was coming up, someone goes, poo shoe. And it was like, poo shoe, poo shoe, poo shoe. The bus driver, get off, get off the bus, wipe your foot. So there I was wiping my foot while everyone hung out the windows of the bus jeering at me. And, and, and it, hasn't, it hasn't scarred me f- for life in any way. It's not that now wherever I go, I'm watching the ground just to check that I don't step in anything. See, some of us have moments of glory in their life. Some of us have moments of anti-glory. A lot of us just have both. Jesus has a moment of glory. See verse 23? Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
His hour, his moment, his time has come. Now, glory is one of those strange words that we sort of know what it means, but if someone asks you to define it, it's hard to know what you... Well, glory means splendor, magnificence, majesty, weightiness, glory. What's Jesus' moment of glory? God the Son come amongst us as a man. What's his moment of splendor and magnificence and majesty? You know, think about the Olympian's moment of glory. She crosses the finish line first. She stands on the podium. She receives the gold medal hung around her neck. The high, it's broadcast to the entire world. Glory. Well, the footy captain's moment of glory he wins the grand final, holds the trophy aloft. His team are ringed around him, screaming, screaming in victory. His wife and kids are running across the paddock to give him a hug. The crowd is going wild with rapture. The media is capturing it all. Glory. The celebrity musician's moment of glory, standing on the stage, singing to hundreds of thousands of people, a sea of faces, but they're in the palm of their hand. They know every word. They're singing every word. They love them. They adore them. They're fixated on them. Glory. What is Jesus' moment of glory? God has come amongst us. God is here. What is his moment of splendor and magnificence and majesty when they shine forth their brightest? Well, verse 23. Jesus replied, the hour's glory has come, sorry, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus says that his moment of utter magnificence and splendor and glory is his death. His death in profound sacrificial love for others, for us and for the Father's glory. Now, do you feel how jarring this is uh, to everything our world esteems as glory? Do you feel how foreign this is to what our natural human mind thinks of as splendor and magnificence? This is just not our instinct at all. Now come back with me and let's put what Jesus says into context. So verses 20 to 22 there, John reports that some Greeks, that probably just means Greek speakers, who are present at the Jewish Passover festival come and they want to see Jesus. So this is a small group of non-Jews, Gentiles. Greek speakers, people from the nations beyond Israel. But they're at the Jewish Passover, which shows that they're very sympathetic to Jewish things. Perhaps even God-fearers participating in the Passover as much as they were able. Somehow they've seen Jesus or heard about Jesus and they want to come and meet him, see him face to face. And so they approach Philip, probably because Philip has a Greek name and they're Greek-speaking. They're from the nations and they think perhaps he'd be most sympathetic. Philip tells Andrew, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Now, we never hear again what happens to these Greek speakers. We don't even know if they ever get to meet Jesus. We presume they're in the crowd that gets to hear the next words of Jesus, but we don't hear about them again and what happened to them. But for Jesus, this is a profound moment. This is a turning point. See, to us, well, at least to me, it looks like a nothing event in his life. Groups of people came up to see Jesus all the time. A, a, a group of Greek speakers want to see Jesus. It looks like a nothing moment, but not for Jesus. For Jesus, this is the signal that the last moment is upon him, that all the ages have come to their fulfillment, 
that now is the time for salvation to break out to the nations of the earth. Because Jesus, seeing this group of the nations coming to him, Greek speakers, people from the nations coming to him, says to him, now is the time for salvation to break beyond the Jews and go to the nations of the earth. And you can see that this is a profound, momentous moment for Jesus because in verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come. And if you've been tracking through John's Gospel, you'll have noticed the phrase, the hour or my hour comes up a number of times. So early in the Gospel, there's these three times it comes up. And each time, my hour has not come. The hour has not come. The hour has not yet come. But then we come to our passage, John 12, the hour has come. The hour has come. John 17, the hour has come. This is the turning point of John's Gospel. The hour of glory is now here. And so the Passover festival week will now be the last week of Jesus' life. John 13, the next chapter to the end, is the last night of Jesus' life. The moment for Jesus to be glorified in death has come. Now, it's not just in his death that Jesus is glorified. He's glorified in his death, but also in his resurrection and his ascension to glory to be exalted above all things. It's a bit of a package. Death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation, all tied together. It all brings him glory. But, but, the heart and the core of the glorification of Jesus right through this passage is his death. It's in his painful, shameful, humiliating death that we see the beating heart of the glory of God in Christ. Even the Greek word translated lifted up, so in verse 32, has a dual meaning. The Apostle John in verse 33 makes clear that it's describing the kind of death Jesus would die. He'll be lifted up in death, lifted up on a cross to die. But it has another meaning as well that's often used, and that is to be lifted up in glory, exalted, lifted up to be exalted ruler of all. It's in being lifted up that Jesus is lifted up. It's in being lifted up to die on a cross that Jesus is being lifted up in glory. Imagine you meet the richest person in the world. I don't know who that is, but the, the absolute, absolute, by far richest person in the world. And they say to you, come here, come here. Let me show you my most precious treasure. Let me show you the very heart of my wealth. Now, what are you expecting them to show you? Some priceless ancient artifact satoshi nakamoto's secret bitcoin wallets the lost tiara of the russian czars bejeweled and it's probably not a thing what 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 would you expect them to, to show you something incredible something that would blow your mind what about if god said to you let me show you me at my most glorious let me show you the very very heart of my glory and splendor What does he show you? He shows you his death. The moment of shining splendor is his death. Jesus dying in love for people and in love for his Father. Which begs the question, why? Why is Jesus' death so glorious? Why does hanging naked, bloody, asphyxiating on a cross to death under the just wrath and curse of God show Jesus' splendor and magnificence and majesty? Well, because of what um, he achieves by it and what it reveals about him. Because of what it achieves and what it reveals about him. Jesus' death is glorious firstly because of what it achieves. Now, what is it that Jesus achieves by his voluntary death? 
Well, the background to this is in the title that Jesus uses for himself in verse 23. The Son of Man. Now, strange title for anyone to use of himself, both in Jesus' day and our day. I'm the Son of Man. But Jesus used it for himself to bring to mind Daniel 7, which was the passage that was just read for us before. Daniel 7 is about a man. That's what a son of man is. The son of a man is a man. Daniel 7 is about a man, or one that looks like a human being, who comes into the presence of God to receive all authority to reign forever. In using this title repeatedly throughout his ministry, Jesus is saying, I'm this one. I'm the one who comes in the clouds and who is given all authority, glory and sovereign power. And all nations and peoples of every language will worship me and my dominion will be an everlasting dominion forever and ever and ever. This is the background and with this background you can see in verse 31 Jesus is saying, that time, that time is right now. The Son of Man has come to do those very things. Look at verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus will come and judge the world, will destroy all evil that opposes him, will destroy Satan and sin and death, and will draw all kinds of people to himself to be under his rule eternally. Jesus, the Son of Man, who is coming into his absolute and glorious rule, his glorification. But how does Jesus achieve all this? In his death. Verse 24. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus shares a general principle about living in this world, verse 24. But first and foremost, it's about him. Jesus, the kernel of wheat that falls to the ground and dies, and in dying brings forth multiple life. I don't know much about farming and plants and all that sort of stuff but I believe wheat has a head and in the head there's lots of kernels lots of individual seeds when one of those kernels one of those seeds falls to the ground and dies in death it produces life a new plant with a new head with a multitude of seeds kernels that then produce more plants and more plants and more plants death brings forth multiple life and that principle is nowhere better seen than in Jesus death By his death, Jesus produces multiple life and growth because it's by dying that he makes it possible for us to be saved, to be right with God, to receive life from God, eternal life. And for that life to spread with the message across the globe to more and more and more so the the nations of the earth might come to salvation, the nations of the earth might come to life. Jesus dies that we might live. Jesus dies in our place under the just judgment of God that we deserve for our offence against God so that we receive what we don't deserve, eternal life. And the three things referred to in verses 31 and 32 are all achieved by his death. See, the first thing achieved by his death, verse 31, Jesus' death brings the world to judgment. That is, the final judgment that will destroy all evil occurs at the cross. Oh yeah, it won't be until Jesus returns that the results of the final judgment at the cross are fully enacted. The culmination of the final judgment at Jesus' second coming. But it's at the cross where Jesus decisively deals with sin 
and judges the world as the Son of Man. See, for those who put their faith in Jesus, put their faith in Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus pours his judgment upon himself. God's wrath falls upon him. He is judged, we are not. So that judgment is done. But for those who reject Jesus' death for them on the cross, their deserved judgment and condemnation remains on them, and on the last day they will receive it when Jesus returns. See, it's at the cross the Son of Man brings final judgment, destroying all evil and all opposition. Second thing achieved, verse 33 as well. By Jesus' death, he destroys the power of Satan over humanity. I don't know what you think about Satan, but the Bible clearly teaches that there is an evil malevolent um, person out there, spirit, seeking to destroy you, eternally destroy you. Here he's called the prince of this world because he has such rule and dominion in this world. But here in this passage we said that the prince of this world is driven out by Jesus' death. And driven out, the word is cast out, like Jesus casting out demons as he walked through Galilee. This is the great exorcism of the New Testament. The driving out of Satan once and for all. It's by the cross that Jesus defeats Satan once and for all, triumphing over him. And that's because Satan's power over us is his condemnation of us for our sinfulness. Satan keeps condemning us before God, saying they're sinners, accusing us before God. They're sinners, they're sinners. God judged them, condemned them. He's the accuser. That's his great power. But on the cross... Jesus deals with our sin once and for all, cleansing us completely, washing us totally clean so that we are forgiven and so free from Satan's power. He can no longer accuse because there's nothing to accuse. By Jesus' death, the prince of this world is driven out. The third thing achieved in his death, verse 32, Jesus draws people from all the nations of the earth into relationship with himself. When it says all people there, I think it means all kinds of people into relationship with him and his father, which means salvation. Again, it's through his death on the cross that people can be reconciled back to God because he himself takes the judgment that we deserve for our offence to God. And so we can be brought back into relationship with God and relationship with him. Now, that's really the answer to those Greek speakers who wanted to talk to Jesus. They want to come to Jesus. The answer? All types of people will be drawn to Jesus through his death for them. People from all the nations of the earth will be drawn to him. Jesus' death is glorious because of what it achieves. On the cross, Jesus is the Son of Man being raised up to receive all rule and glory and sovereign power forever and ever and ever. Glorification in his death. But notice that his death brings us eternal life. Notice that his death destroys the power of Satan for us his death defeats sin and death for us his death draws us all people to him in salvation and his death is all for the glory of his father jesus death is glorious because of what his death achieves but let's take one more step into the very heart of things all this is glorious because of what it reveals about him all this is glorious because of what it shows about him which is his utter and incredible goodness and love The death of Jesus reveals to the universe God's perfect and beautiful loving goodness like nothing else. Did you notice, did you hear, the things that Jesus achieved by his death are for us 
and for our salvation and for the glory of his Father. On the cross, we see God's profound goodness and love displayed like nowhere else, his glory. And it cost him unimaginably. Look at verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is overwhelmed, terrified, troubled in his soul because he sees his death under the judgment of God is at hand. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? That's what he wants, to be saved from his hour of glory because he knows his hour of glory is his hour of death. And not merely the agony of physical death on the cross, but the suffering he'll experience under the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. But Jesus says, no, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus wants to be saved from death, but he wants something more. And that is in his love and goodness to save you. And in his love and goodness for his father to love and honor and glorify him. And God the Father thunders from heaven that he has been, he is glorified in Jesus and particularly his sacrificial death. See, the death of Jesus on the cross is the moment of his glory because it is the moment we most see his godness. In fact, his death on the cross is the moment we see most clearly God's godness because this is the moment that we behold the perfect and beautiful goodness and love of God in all its fullness. Now, in our world today, you can often see what our world thinks of as glory by what's posted on social media. That's a, that's a good percentage of what's on socials, isn't it? Uh, look at me in my glory. So social media is crying out to us all the time. World, world, post something. Show us your moment of glory. And so the guy standing there with his shirt off, looking in the mirror at the gym, taking the photo. Moment of glory for the world to see. Or the woman dressed up beautifully, takes the photo of herself. Moment of glory. Or the guy standing in front of the Lamborghini showing that this is, look how wealthy I am. Moment of glory. Or the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the husband, the wife. Look at my amazing holiday. Look at the incredible food I'm eating at this incredible location, living my best life. Moment of glory. Moment of glory. Moment of glory. God, God, let's post something about you. Show us your moment of glory. That's our God. His loving goodness displayed as he dies under his just judgment for you and me. That's true glory. It's interesting when you come back into Exodus, when Moses asked God, please God, show me your glory. And God says, I will. I'll give you a glimpse. I'll give you just a glimpse of the back of my glory, my passing glory. What is it that God shows Moses? It, it, it isn't his mighty power, though that's glorious. It isn't his vast, mighty warrior, angelic armies, though that's glorious. It isn't his amazing wealth, though that's glorious. It isn't that God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present, all-competent and all-wise, though these are highly significant parts of the glory, the splendor of God. What is at the core? What is at the very heart of God's glory? What is it that God shows Moses? His loving goodness, his love and compassion and mercy and sovereignty and justice and forgiveness. The glory of God is his name. The glory of God is his character. The glory of God is who he is. And who he is is compassion, graciousness, 
slowness to anger, overflowing with love and faithfulness, full of forgiveness and justice. The core of God's glory is that he is perfectly and beautifully good and loving forever. And when Jesus, who is the glory of God, come amongst us as a man turns up, what would you expect to see in Jesus? The perfect and beautiful loving goodness of God displayed. And so why is Jesus' death so glorious? Why is this the moment of his glory? Because in his death, the godness of Jesus bursts forth. That is, the very character of God is most vividly, openly displayed for all to see. The wonder and beauty of his loving goodness on display for the whole universe forever and ever. The depths of the being and the character of God, his goodness and compassion and love and justice and forgiveness radiate forth from the cross. And so on the cross, Jesus is crowned as the king of glory as he dies naked and alone and in agony. So if you have the eyes to see it, the eyes of faith, eyes opened by the Holy Spirit, you almost cannot look upon the radiance of the cross. It is so beautifully good what our God has done. Imagine with me a, um, a lamp, a spherical, a sphere lamp, and, and, and it shot, has a, it's bright, a beautiful shining light, but over it, you, you've stuck bits of duct tape, little squares of duct tape, all over it, all over it, all over it, all over it, so you can see none of the light. Now, in this illustration, God is the lamp, which is terrible to compare God to an inanimate object. But God is the lamp, burning with beautiful, shining glory. There's the radiance that radiates off him, the glory of who he is, has always been shining, will always eternally be shining. But it's hidden, it's covered. We can't see it unless God in his grace reveals it to us. Now, that's the unfolding story of the Bible. God revealing himself to humanity bit by bit in his dealings with humanity recorded in the scriptures. Piece by piece, we see who he is and so we see his glory revealed more and more. And so God creates the world, the beauty, the wonder, the wisdom. Bits of duct tape torn off. Glory revealed, glory revealed, glory revealed. Jesus' dealings with the, uh, God's dealings with the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Glory revealed, revealed, revealed. Uh, God's dealings with Israel, saving them out of Egypt, the Passover, the, through the Red Sea, the bringing them to the promised land. Glory revealed, glory revealed, glory revealed. His promises to Abraham being fulfilled, giving them the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the law, more and more of the glory of God being revealed, the promises, the prophecies. And then Jesus comes, the very glory of God in human flesh amongst us. And the ripping off of the duct tape accelerates, accelerates as more and more of God, who he is, is revealed in Jesus, this man, the depths of his glory, the glory of God, the glory of God, the glory of God bursting forth in the life and ministry of Jesus. But it's at the cross at the cross where the remaining pieces of duct tape are just incinerated, are just blown off, just disappear. Because in Jesus' death, resurrection, exaltation, the glory of God is fully revealed. And particularly in his death, it's the moment that his glory, the radiance of his beauty and goodness shines forth in all its glory. His love and justice and forgiveness and mercy, the glory and splendor of who he is for all to see. It's not at the cross that the lamp is turned on. Now, the lamp of God's glory has always and will always be shining. It's just that it's there that we see it where before we could not. The fullness of the glory of God bursting forth in all its radiance.
And seeing this is key to our salvation. To see the glory of God in Jesus and to see the glory of God, particularly in his death, is key to salvation. Do you see in verse 34, the crowd have a question about what Jesus is saying. And you think, fair enough. At the time, it was fairly hard to understand what Jesus was saying about who he is and who's the Son of Man and who's the Messiah and how does this all fit together. But Jesus has an encouragement, a challenge really for them. Verse 35. You're going to have the light just a little while longer, says Jesus. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Jesus says, he's the light, the very glory and truth of God revealed. Don't reject him. Don't turn away from the light while you have it. Rather, believe in the light and become children of the light. Trust in Jesus and become his children. Belong to him, belong to God. But if you reject the light, you remain blind to the glory of God in Jesus. And the darkness will overtake you. And you'll stumble around in the darkness of this life, not knowing what it's really all about. And ultimately, you'll be cut off from God and his glory forever. Do you see, the key to salvation is Jesus. And I think Jesus is saying here, stick with me. Stay in the light. Even if you don't understand everything that I've said and that's going on, stay in the light. Because in him, and particularly in his death, the glory of God is displayed. You step away from this light, there's only darkness left for you. Now... What does all this mean for me? What's my moment of glory? Well, do you see in the passage the consistency between Jesus' life and the life of a Christian? The consistency of life that should exist between Jesus and us. Have a look again, verse 24, the general principle of living in this world that's most fundamentally embodied in Jesus. But then in verse 25, Jesus makes it clear what it means for us to respond rightly to him. Our life is to be like his life. Verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Just like Jesus dies to bring eternal life to others, we are to die to ourselves so that we might receive eternal life from Jesus. Just as Jesus didn't love his life so much that he hang on to it, but instead gave it up to bring salvation to many. So we are not to love our lives so much in this world that we try to hang on to them, but rather to give them up so that we might have salvation in Jesus. And give our life up in the sense of, my life does no longer belong to me. It's His. He's the one who rules me now. I no longer rule myself. Because Jesus says, if we love our lives in this world, we lose them for eternal life. But if we hate our lives in this world, we we gain real life, eternal life. So give up control. Give up self-rule. Give up being king of your life. Let Jesus take control. Let Jesus rule. Let Jesus be king of your life. If you love this world and the things of this world and you want so much to hang on to those that you won't grab hold of Jesus, then you'll lose Jesus. But if you let go of the things of this world and all this world holds out to you and you grab hold of Jesus, you will have him and you will have him forever, eternal life. And in this very passage, Jesus is the model for us, isn't he? What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour? The agony of wanting to go, his, go the way of loving his life in this world and keeping his life in this world. But 
No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus chose not to love his life in this world and hang on to it, but to give it up. And we're to do the same. Verse 26 gives you a little more clarity about what this looks like. Whoever serves me must follow me. We're to be Jesus' servants, servants who follow him. We serve, we live for him, we follow, we go where he goes. I've used this illustration before, but um, I think it's a helpful one to use again. Um, Some people conceive of uh, becoming a Christian like this. I'm driving down the freeway of life, going wherever I want to go, swerving here, swerving there. I'm, I'm totally free to do what I want. I'm in control of my life. But then I see Jesus on the side of the road. And he's very compelling. And the more I look at him, the more I realize, wow, he is who he says he is. This man is risen from the dead. This man is not just a man, he is God. In fact, he's God come amongst us to save us. He has died so that we might be forgiven and have eternal life with God. He's the ruler of all things. I need him as part of my life. And so you pull your car over and you say, Jesus, Jesus, please forgive me. Please join me in the car. And Jesus jumps into the passenger seat and you drive off and you have Jesus with you wherever you go from that point forward. Whatever you do, Jesus is part of your life. Now that's not becoming a Christian. Becoming a Christian is more like this. I'm driving down the highway of life, doing whatever I want to do, going wherever I want to go. I see Jesus on the side of the road. I pull over because he's so compelling. He is who he says he is, risen from the dead, resurrected. Jesus please forgive me. And you get out of the driver's seat and you let him into the driver's seat and you go and you sit into the passenger seat and you say, where are we going, Jesus? What are we doing now? What do you want from my life? That's what becoming a Christian is. And we heard something about it last week, didn't we? So what's my moment of glory? Well, in one sense, it's totally the wrong question, isn't it? It's not about me. It's not about my glory. I exist to serve, to honour, to follow, to bring glory to the glorious one. It's not about me and my glory. It's about me making much of the splendour and majesty and magnificence of Jesus. And particularly about drawing everyone's attention to Jesus' crowning moment of glory. That is, his death on the cross where the goodness and love of God radiate forth, dying on the cross to save sinners and glorify his Father. What's my moment of glory? Wrong question, really. I don't exist for my glory. I exist for the glory of Jesus and the glory of his Father. But in another sense, there are moments when in our weakness, in our frailty, in Christ's strength, we are becoming the person who Jesus is increasingly making us to be. He's transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And it's glorious when we live like this. So in this sense, when am I being most glorious, most splendorous, most majestic, most magnificent? When I'm being like my Lord. That is, when I turn away from selfishness to serve Him. When I turn away from my desires to follow Him. Which looks like when I, like Him, sacrifice myself for the good of others. When I, like him, die so that others might live. When I'm being not about me and my glory, but about Jesus and his Father's glory. What are your moments of glory? What are your moments of splendor? See, 
if the moments of true glory were ever to be captured and posted on social media, it would never be you posting them. Because as soon as you're promoting yourself, thinking about yourself, focused on yourself, it's not glorious anymore. If it were possible for you to capture, to post true glory on social media, it would be others catching you in the act of loving service without you knowing about it. Here's my husband cleaning up the dog's vomit. He doesn't know I know. Moment of glory. Here's my friend cleaning up the chairs, packing the chairs when everyone else has just gone home. He doesn't know I'm here. Glorious. Here's my friend giving heaps of time to talk to the person that no one in the world ever seems to have any time to. Glorious. Here's my Christian sister praying in her room, crying out to the Lord for the salvation of her family and friends. Moment of glory. Here's inside the heart of my Christian brother whose heart is heavy with worry and burden because their friend is starting to walk away from Christ. Glorious. Now, you can't really capture this stuff on social media, can you? Because it's about heart. It's about motive. It's, it's about what's done when no one else sees. But we're most glorious when we live for Christ and when we die to ourselves so that others might live. We sacrifice for the good of others. We live gloriously when the possibility of really enjoyable sin just falls right in front of us. Right there. No one else would know. I could get away with it. But Jesus is my Lord. I want to serve him. I want to follow him. And so when we turn from that sin to obey him, we're doing it when no one else would even know. It's glorious. When you enter that conversation after church and you've got big and difficult things going on for you, you're emotionally stirring inside. But then the person starts to share some of the difficult things that are going on for them. And so you, with effort, intentionally put away thinking about yourself, turn your attention fully on them to listen to them, to hear what's going on, to care just like the Lord has cared for you. Oh, it's glorious. When you think or you know that speaking up as a follower of Jesus in a certain context is going to cost you, but you know it's the right thing to do, it's going to cost you ridicule, anger, isolation, discomfort, difficulty, but you speak anyway because you want to honour your Lord and you're not living for life in this world. You're living for the world to come. It's glorious. When on a Saturday night you set the alarm as you do most weeks so you can get up early, in order to come to church and serve Jesus and his people by teaching kids, by leading a G team, by... It's glorious. When you give your money to gospel ministry sacrificially, because you're not living for this world, you're living for the world to come, and you know that your financial sacrifice is so that others might live forever. Die to myself so that others might live. It's glorious. When times are just really, really tough, pain... Sadness, darkness, confusion, anxiety, but in the midst of it all, you just hang on to Jesus, cry out to him as your help, as your strength, and look to his promises of the life to come. You're being glorious. When in church you sing, and, and you almost can't sing loudly and vibrantly enough to get out, the joy that's in your heart because of what the Lord has done. You long for the world, for the universe to break into song, to bring glory to Jesus that he deserves. It's glorious. When you get old like me, 
something that will really test you is what you do with your children. Oh, old like Dan, he's got children. Because there's nothing more precious in the world than your children and the decisions you make with them will really test you. So when you're coaching your children going through hard situations and you could coach them to go the easy way or the Jesus way and you encourage them to go the Jesus way because you really believe that to serve and follow Jesus and to live for the world to come is to be honoured by God and is to receive eternal life and He's glorious. Now all these things are glorious in God's sight because they're not about us in our glory, and our self-promotion. They're about God and His glory and, and loving other people. They're about goodness and love, just like our Father's, our, our Lord's glory is about goodness and love. And this is the sort of life that God honours. Let's finish with me in verse 26. Jesus says, Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honour the one who serves me. My Father will honour the one who serves me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that we would be those uh, who are honoured by you because we serve you. We praise you, Lord, so much for your incredible uh, glory, the radiance uh, of your glory displayed so vividly and beautifully in your death, your son's death on the cross, uh, your loving goodness on display for the universe to see forever. Uh, please, Lord, make us like you. Help us to live uh, for your glory and not our own. And please enable us to follow and serve your Son, to die to ourselves so that others might have life in Jesus forever. And we ask this in his name. Amen.